Hi, and welcome to Match Cut, the movie podcast where we normally talk about two movies, but today we're talking about just one. My name is Aaron. I'm here with my friend and co-host, Matt. Hello. Hi. So today we're doing a bonus episode, something a little different we're calling Unmatched. Uh, This episode will give us a chance to talk about a movie that we might not get to otherwise because of our format. And today that movie is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is written and directed by Quentin Tarantino and stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, and Margot Robbie. Quentin Tarantino is best known for Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and the Kill Bill movies. You may have heard of him. Yeah, he's, you know, indie filmmaker. (laughs) Once Upon a Time in Hollywood follows the fading career of Rick Dalton and his friend and stunt double Cliff Booth as they struggle to find work in the fading golden era of Hollywood. Short and sweet. Yeah, that's uh, that's one of those things about this film. It's like, that's the story, but not the story. Right. That's, uh, that's like a very quick encapsulation of what it truly is without, you know, going into what it's really dealing with. Yeah, because this is one of those... I know we talked about genre pieces in our last, like, full episode. Um but it's kind of one of those things where it's just, here's the life of a guy and it doesn't have like a central, like doesn't have that three act format of like setting problem resolution. It's more right. Here's, here's a big old chunk of life. Yeah. It's, it's super, it's like a a slice of life piece. while also a period piece. Uh, It's a, it's interesting. Yeah, and and fortunately, like it does, it is interesting. And and if if we were to compare it to a movie, I would vote for The Irishman because it's some of that <laughs> same format. I haven't watched The Irishman yet. Um, to me, this honestly feels like Quentin Tarantino doing something like Lost in Translation. Mm, well, I haven't seen that one, so. Uh, well, it's similar subject matter. It's an aging actor trying to find work and meaning by doing something they don't normally do, which, you know, Rick Dalton does. Um, whereas in that, Bill Murray's character plays kind of a version of himself that right. is, you know, past his prime and he's going to Japan because they want him to do a, a, tea, a whiskey ad. And so it's kind of like him trying to find meaning and friendship with this inter intergenerational friendship with uh, Scarlett Johansson's character. Can't remember any of the characters names. I just know that, <laughs> that movie, I like that movie yeah. uh, and I like this movie. Yeah, it is. It's got a lot of those like good Quentin Tarantino touches and I, I don't know how, but every single cutaway, every single like clip of a fictional TV show or a movie is just like, it's insanely fascinating. And we talked about this a little bit where you'd said that Quentin Tarantino had like had full ideas for um, bounty law and FBI. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know if I, I know, I don't know if FBI, because that was a real show to my knowledge. Okay. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he did the same writing exercise that he did uh, to create bounty law, where he wrote like multiple episodes or an episode or two. And thought of like how I would fit Rick Dalton into it, but right. um, specifically, he has written five or six scripts 
30 minute scripts that he wants to make on some streaming service with really his only stipulation being let him shoot on actual film. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's like, he's not even married to having Leonardo DiCaprio reprise Rick Dalton. Yeah. It's not, it's not something you would necessarily need. Like he doesn't make that those shots for me, at least like, it's just, it just looks like an interesting story. I mean, you could easily even like wove it into the narrative that they, they put in once upon a time in Hollywood where uh, Rick Dalton like tried to become a big film star and ruined the last season of Bounty Law so clearly he wasn't available to work so what if these episodes are set but with a new actor taking over very briefly before they just cancel the show outright right similar to that scene where uh, they put him in the great escape yeah so <laughs> I remember watching a Red Letter Media's thing on it and they didn't quite get what was going on there. But the way I interpret that is he's trying to downplay that he nearly got this star-making role for what was <laughs> Steve McQueen because yeah. like he's like, nope, never tested, never read, never was on set, never did all these things. And it was like, here's footage of him <laughs> with screen tests, with him doing actual scenes with these characters. So yeah. it's like, it's not, I didn't, they interpret it as him imagining that's what happened. Mm-hmm. But no, that was, in my opinion, that was him actually having done screen tests for the role. Yeah, kind of a similar thing to like where he says, oh yeah, my car's in the shop. And then Kurt Russell's voice overcomes and well, that's a fucking lie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, that's also one of, my fi- one of my favorite things in this is Kurt Russell's character. Uh, mm-hmm. be uh, like it's implied that he's actually stuntman mike from death proof yeah that does make sense um but it's weird because this is like a well-adjusted guy who has a life and a career yeah so and um, kind of looks down on cliff booth for murdering his wife allegedly <laughs> allegedly oh. very heavily implied that he <laughs> murdered his wife <laughs> Yeah, or did little to prevent an unfortunate accident or something. It didn't seem like they were the happiest of marriages, to be fair. Yeah. Uh, although murder is is usually the last resort that one should uh, should go to. Mm-hmm. But he's a fucking war hero. <laughs> that he is. Yeah, lots of lots of good scars on him. You see in his his shirtless scene, he's got like a scar up by his clavicle and like another large one across his chest. Whether that's wartime yeah, he's got uh, or... he's got yeah, like a stretch, like a some deep tissue scarring at like the the shoulder meets the the torso there. Mm-hmm. Um, he also has two facial scars. He has like uh, yeah, like cuts on one on his chin and one on his forehead. Yeah. He's a guy who's lived a life. Yeah. Uh, the the thing I love about this movie is it it just breathes. It's it's not in a hurry to tell you all these things because it only has 90 minutes to do so. Yeah. Well, I think a little more than that, but I, I get your meaning. Right. But, uh, you know, with a lot of these, uh, you know, period pieces, sometimes there's, there's uh, like, a rush to do it because, like, they just don't have enough time and there's it's too expensive to, you know, block off these streets for that amount of time. But like, I feel like this is like 
Quentin Tarantino was not stifled in his creative process at all with this film. Yeah. Oh, I, I get what you're saying. It had this movie has more than 90 minutes, so it takes its time. Yeah, yeah. It, it okay. takes its time. It's not in a rush. It's going to show you 14 minutes of Brad Pitt just driving around L.A. <laughs> yeah. Which, or just like also like more of that cowboy, that cowboy movie where uh, Rick Dalton plays the heavy opposite yeah, yeah, Timothy yeah. Oliphant. Yeah. Whatever was, his character's name is. Uh, it James Stacy. James Stacy, who's kind of like. You know, one of those up and coming new kids of Hollywood that maybe never makes it, Mm -hmm. you know, like because this is 69 that we're in here and like the Western TV show was dying. Mm -hmm. Like it was it was already gone, but people were still trying to put it out because like we got all these sets. We have all this, you know, money invested into it. We can't just throw it all away. So might as well use it. Yeah. And they're obviously they're just shooting like the pilot. So who knows if that series goes anywhere? Yeah, yeah, that that's. Another like, you. This is one of those Quentin Tarantino love letters to cinema that I can appreciate, and I think a lot more people can because it's a lot more accessible to watch these old, you know, TV shows or these old movies that they're this era of filmmaking they're talking about than say some of his earlier works that were making reference to the French original noir films, you know, new, the new era of filmmaking that was coming about in the nineteen. 40s and early 50s which just is not available to uh the the wide audience of westerners that consume quentin tarantino's media yeah and this is something where you know a large part of the american audience probably grew up with watching this stuff or hearing about it especially manson murders and yeah which is something that it was interesting i saw this with kurt um Mm -hmm. And he knew the Manson family was involved in this movie, but he didn't know how. And he didn't actually like really register that who they were and what happened. Yeah. Like he, just, he knew it was involved, but he didn't know like the specifics. Like, no, that Roman Polanski was married to Sharon Tate and Sharon Tate was the one that was murdered. And they wanted to kill Polanski as well, but he just wasn't home. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for me, I had to read up a lot on it. Like after I watched the movie, like I knew as soon as like towards the end, I was like, Oh fuck. I've heard about this somewhere. Yeah. They went in, they murdered a pregnant woman. I remember cause I like listened to a lot of like my favorite murder. Yeah. And after watching like Mindhunter, I read a lot about like serial killers and stuff. I'm like, Oh, this sounds so familiar. Where do I know this from? <laughs> also interesting to note, the guy who plays Charles Manson in this also played Charles Manson in Mindhunter. Oh yeah. I didn't so recognize he, him without the swastika carved into his forehead, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. He does such a great job playing him in both scenes. It's like, he just seems like kind of a normal dude who's a little out there, but um Mm -hmm. not totally super insane yeah i cut you off when you were saying something about the scene with rick dalton driving around la do you do you remember what you were gonna say not rick dalton uh cliff booth the least believable part of this movie is how little traffic there is (laughs) yeah yeah i brought up like you know oh maybe they would cgi some cars in but you're right that quentin tarantino probably wouldn't well, it's funny enough that when we we were uh, discussing that is literally later in the film, he uses CGI to create a CG Pan Am plane. Yeah. For an establishing shot. It's like there's 
definitely plenty of like shots of planes from the air that he probably could have used. That's a strange thing that feels like maybe it was part of a reshoot or something that the second unit took took care of. And it's like, it's not what I wanted, but it, it works enough and it's fine. It's not that big a deal. Yeah. Cause I mean, it's yeah, I've definitely seen some other movies where they just like fill a street with CGI cars. Like it's not outside the realm of possibility and CGI cars like, always look pretty good yeah i just think you know quentin tarantino is just one of the this movie i I feel is encapsulating feelings he has for hollywood currently that it's an end of the era film it's a transition from one way of doing things to another out with the old in with the new and this is how they do it now um he is one of the last uh handful of true directors in a sense that like he has a vision from start to finish, you know, he's screenwriter of all of his films uh, and he gets it done. And he's at a point now where a studio will give him money to do what he wants. Not saying there's mm-hmm. not other directors out there that don't get that leeway, but if, a if another director tried to do this, I don't think it would work because you know, other directors are pushing film in other directions, whereas he just has such reverence for the old, old Hollywood. Yeah. Not too many like writer directors left. I think it there feels is, like, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and the ones that are, are a little more auteur than Quentin Tarantino comes across as, Whereas, you know, Tarantino is a lot more commercially viable than some of these other, you know, auteur directors that are out there. Yeah. Um, I will say there were a couple scenes for me where not knowing like the history of this threw me a little bit. One of them was the movie theater scene where Margot Robbie playing Sharon Tate goes to see a movie she's in. But I didn't I hadn't like internalized the fact that she actually is Sharon Tate. Because I I can't remember if her name was ever mentioned specifically. She's just kind of the girlfriend of Roman Polanski. Anyways. Wife of. Wife of Roman and Polanski. And it is, it is actually specifically mentioned by the one actor, not that he's a bad actor, that takes me out of this film, which is Damian Lewis as Steve McQueen. Yeah. He gives you the whole rundown of the love triangle that was going on between Sharon Tate, Roman Polanski, and Emile Hirsch's character who was a real person. Uh, yeah. J.C. Who was also unfortunately murdered uh, at yeah. that, on that night. Um, but so, uh, the reason Damien Lewis takes me out of it is Damien Lewis has a, is British. Mm-hmm. He has a very specific American accent that works. And I literally didn't know growing up when I watched um, Band of Brothers, probably Band of Brothers, that he was British AF. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he's Same. done so much other work since then that it's like, oh, I, it's one of those things that you have to remind yourself. However, him already having to affect an American accent and then affect a very specific accent of uh, a guy who lived. It's called an idiolect. An idiolect. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's a specific person's accent. That is, uh, that it just. It is the only thing that pulled me out. And I don't think he even was 
not passable looking for Steve McQueen. Like he kind of mm-hmm. had the dog face look. It's just his voice just wasn't there. Yeah. And it's not, it's, it's a lot to ask an actor to do that. <laughs> right. I mean, and, and so much so that they like even put his name underneath him. Like when he shows up, like in the film, just cause I don't know, maybe they thought some other people would get it. Yeah. I mean, it had, the vast majority of people that would probably go see a Quentin Tarantino film in this day and age that are millennials might not have seen any of Steve McQueen's work. Mm-hmm. They might know the name, but they probably haven't seen things that he's done. Yeah. So for me, when Sharon Tate goes to see the film that she's in, they use like the actual film and poster and photographs and I thought like, okay, she's not actually in this movie. She's just pretending to be the actress to see a free movie, which is obviously not the case. And so I was just a little thrown, but second, second go around. I got it. That's one of the criticisms people give this uh, movie is like, well, you put, you know, Rick Dalton, all these historic things. Why didn't she do the same for Sharon Tate played by Margot Robbie? And that's kind of the the crux of what this film is in a way to Quentin Tarantino. It is a fairy tale set in a version of our world to give these, these innocent people, Sharon Tate, Jay Sebring and uh, LaBianca. I cannot remember the first name, uh, a happy ending, a fairy tale ending where they don't get murdered for just being in the wrong place. Mm hmm. And so he didn't want to disrespect the the actual history that was Sharon Tate by yeah. replacing her with Margot Robbie, who like is a fairly good like stand-in look-alike for Sharon Tate. Yeah, and I I thought like that was the point of the scene where she's like, "Well, I kind of look like this person. I'll just say I am this person." No, no, that's uh, <laughs> not what they're going for. Yeah. But that, that requires a bit of knowledge of this era of Hollywood that the the target audience of, you know, this film might not know. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, <laughs> Roman Polanski wasn't always the exiled child, you know, rapist. Yeah. He actually was normal once. Once upon a time in Hollywood. In Hollywood. Also, this title is just way too long. I hate having to type this title out every time. <laughs> you can you can probably skip the ellipses sometimes <laughs> yeah when i put it in the notes i just had it in a copy and paste so i just pasted it in yeah um i think there is a mild ele- there's a small elephant in the room a baby elephant in the room <laughs> that surrounded this movie and it is the bruce lee scenes yeah uh i have read what uh, kareem abdul jabbar who for those that don't know was a student and friend of Bruce Lee in the 70s after he had done his time on network television playing Cato on the Green Hornet. Um, Mike Moe, the actor that played Bruce Lee in this film, was praised by Bruce Lee's actual daughter for getting her father's speech patterns and mannerisms spot on to the point where she's like, you, you captured the essence of my father. Yeah where Kareem Abdul-Jabbar took umbrage and offense to stereotypes that are present in Hollywood to this day, and especially in Bruce Lee's time, that was a big thing that he hated, that, you know, the 
the Asian man, the Oriental, as they would say at the time, was not allowed to be a leading man, was not allowed to be, you know, uh, capable, was kind of a buck to stereotype owing to, you know, mm-hmm. latent racism from World War II uh, and current racism with Vietnam, um, was subservient and a fool for most of the time. And that was part of what Bruce Lee had problems with in Hollywood that forced him to get to not forced him, but made him choose to make films in Hong Kong is he wasn't getting equal representation as a minority man. Um, however, I think he's missing the part of this film and not to say that, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar just doesn't get it. The man is a doctor, like a doctorate in physics has written, written multiple books and papers, yeah. uh, clearly intelligent. The scene in in question is a fight between Bruce Lee and Cliff Booth where Bruce Lee is being very, making a lot of bolsterous, bold claims to a rapt audience of the people working on the green Hornet and Cliff being the, the personal stunt double of uh, Rick Dalton. He's heard, you know, he doesn't believe any of this shit. And so he kind of calls him out on it. And, the fact of the matter is, like, at this point in his life, I think Bruce Lee, in, in the stuff that I've read and, you know, documentaries I've watched on him, he was kind of full of himself at this early stage in his career. You know, this yeah. is not that long after um, he graduated college from the University of Washington, uh, met his wife, moved to California to become a film star. He made a lot of bolsterous claims and a lot of bold claims that could you back them up? No, but you know, it sounds cool to say. And so what the fight, the fight is, is in the the narrative of the story, it's establishing that Cliff Booth is dangerous because he can take on Bruce Lee, who many people consider to be one of the best martial artists of all time. And the other thing that I think people such as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar miss is the fight ends in a draw with no true clear winner. Yeah. Like the first, the first part of that is just Cliff Booth getting knocked on his ass. Yeah. He thinks that literally Bruce Lee is just nothing but hot air. And so the fact that Bruce Lee knocks him on his ass with one kick, which Bruce Lee was known to be powerful with his kicks. to the point where he could break punching and kicking bags with just one running jump kick. Yeah, and it's kind of compounded by the fact that it's like it's a memory that a character is having in this sort of like fairy tale version of Hollywood. Right. But like the flip side to that coin is okay, we're gonna give Sharon Tate all this fair respect and representation, but we're gonna do Bruce Lee like a caricature. Like- I but I don't think he's a caricature. I, I think that is a version of Bruce Lee that was present in his life. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's unfair to to have Bruce Lee portrayed like that. Yeah. And I say caricature just because that's, I think, what the critics of that representation would say. Mm. I'm not here to come down from my high podcasting horse <laughs> with my 30-year-old white man opinions and <laughs> declare winners. <laughs> just, I'm just trying to, you know, kind of put the two arguments out there. Yeah, I think the, the point that someone like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has is it's a very personal thing to him because Bruce Lee was a friend and mentor to him and was an important part of his life. And you can't dismiss his actual experience with this guy. And he sees a representation that he says 
that's not the man I knew. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side is, did you know him his whole life? And is this a wholly unfair representation of him? Right. Uh, similar uh, complaints are being leveled at the currently in theaters biopic Ford vs. Ferrari uh, of the character Leo Beebe, played by Josh Lucas. Mm-hmm. That the, the movie and narrative gets him wrong, uh, is not the man that these people knew later in his life. Um, yeah. You know, the with any of these things, you, the, with people that are still alive with more recent history, you're gonna have people that are upset about it. However, I don't think this was Quentin Tarantino's intent with the film to show that Bruce Lee was just full of hot air. I think yeah. in the narrative of the film, it was to show Cliff Booth as a very real threat to someone that is as well known to the public zeitgeist as Bruce Lee. Yeah. So maybe a stupid question, but were Cl- Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth real people? No. Okay. Completely made up. So that's the, that's the other conceit of this film is that the main characters we're following, everyone that they are interacting with for the most part is real. Uh, I don't think the people in like the Lancer uh, pilots, uh, Timothy Oliphant's James Stacy. I don't think he was a real actor. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that the the Trudy McFarlane or Trudy Fairlane, the the young the young actress that kind of gets Rick Dalton to be a better actor in that <laughs> yeah. pilot. Uh, yeah. She is just that young actress. She wasn't. Ba- uh, she might have been based on a few young child actors at the time. Uh, Trudy Frazier is the character's name. But um, had no further real-life ties, to my knowledge. Um, Gotcha. But, so that's the kind of thing, is what he does well, in my opinion, is this, is he, it it all feels believable. Yeah. Like, the, the, when Rick Dalton goes to Italy to make Italian films, because (laughs) his star is fading in, in Hollywood, and it was, you know, a tactic that had been popularized famously by Clint Eastwood. He wasn't getting any roles in Hollywood after um, Rawhide ended. And so, you know, hey, we got the, you know, this money together in Italy. The, the guy wants to make a Western in Italy and Spain. They want an American to be the lead role. You in? Not doing anything here fast. So, yeah, sure. Turns out it made his career. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like the Italian film industry, which people might not know this, there is a huge follow the leader thing. Whenever there is a fad or any big thing, Italy will produce hundreds of copies (laughs) of it. At least back in the day, there was gladiator films. Uh, They make mention in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that a a James Bond ripoff. Like there are hundreds of those James Bond spy ripoffs. There is even one that was covered on mystery science theater 3000 that is called, uh, operation double double Oh seven starring Neil Connery, who is Sean Connery's actual brother. Huh? That is, I'm going to have to look that up. I'm going to, I'm going to watch the, I would, I would recommend watching the mystery science theater 3000 version of it because that makes it tolerable because it's ridiculously terrible. (laughs) It's called also known as operation kid brother. (laughs) Sure. Sure. But like, he's not called 
James, he's not like Neil Bond or something like he's I think he's called Neil Connery or something like that in the movie. He's just called his real name. Bames John. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> Get the Bondulance. Yeah. Uh um let's see. Did you recognize Dakota Fanning in this movie? I did. Okay. Uh, that was something I looked up on IMDb. I'm like, wait, Dakota Fanning's in this? Who did she play? Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, Dakota Fanning has grown up. <laughs> yeah. That's, it's really interesting how he's got, like, just a wide swath of characters in this film. And a lot of them are, you know, that's another thing he's doing with this film is someone like a Timothy Oliphant. He's headlined multiple shows he's been in movies but his star has never quite gone as big as maybe it could have and yeah. so he puts him in a role that is kind of like true to timothy oliphant's life and you know i've always liked timothy oliphant as an actor i think he's criminally underrated from the show justified and he was mm-hmm. amazing in deadwood yeah but um yeah it's there's a whole bunch of actors in this that Maybe they didn't get their due in real Hollywood. So again, this is their fairy tale. They get to play these actors that maybe had a better career than they actually have. Right. I mean, we all remember Emil Hirsch from Speed Racer. We don't talk about Speed Racer on this podcast. <laughs> well, we might have to change that. What else? Oh, yeah. I wasn't sure if acid dipped cigarettes would actually work. I have done uh... no further research. I think that they they were a thing, and they are a thing that uh, the hippies did back in the day. Like uh, these were wild times, man. And like, <laughs> sure, it's just it's really interesting how well he captured the feel of it. Like, that's just something I love about this film is it's it's technically a film about filmmaking, which is you know pretty self congratulatory from Hollywood. They do it often, though. Yeah, but there is um a level of reverence given to this era that was not tip- is not typically given cuz this is when you know films like uh you know the new the 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 new wave of hollywood was coming in a in a few years that would produce films like serpico where there's like this grittiness and rawness to them and this is again the end of the the studio system the the tv television pilot seasons that is kind of completely gone away due to streaming services like Netflix, where they would make a pilot and shop it around. Now shows are being, being filmed completely. Like they'll come to them with the idea and maybe like test footage or like the, an actor will, you know, put their money into producing uh, some episodes and you'll get the full season. You won't get the pilot. And based on the pilot, you know, response, a season is then ordered. I mean, do you think it's, it's, that like just shooting an entire season all at once without like testing the waters, the pilot is now like the same cost as making a movie. So it's kind of the same gamble or. Well, I think it's because we have access to so much data, you know, with mm. the metadata in terms of what people watch, who they watch them and what they're in and what and how they, they engage in it, that it's far easier to produce a television show that will have an audience like, you know, 10 years ago, although Netflix was still around at the time, if you had made Stranger Things in the old system, it probably would have never found its audience and been remembered as a cult classic. Like, yeah. 
imagine if you made Firefly today that would find its audience and it would have its run. Because look at The Expanse. It's a very similar thing where The Expanse was made on cable television. It was made for sci-fi, I believe, or USA, one of those you know, mid-budget, mid-level um, mm-hmm. cable channels. And it just wasn't succeeding. It wasn't hitting you know, expectations, and it was getting canceled at the end of the second season. And then a fan campaign caused it to be picked up by Amazon Prime, and they're going into their final season able to tell the story the way they want to. Yeah, thank goodness for that. Uh, yeah, it was sci-fi. So yeah, like I remember trying to watch it. I watched the whole first season, but I was watching it on DVR because like I just engage with content differently now than we used to. Mm-hmm. So like I would rather watch a few episodes at a time because it is telling a continuous narrative in the story rather than just one episode, wait a week, one episode, wait a week, one episode, wait a week. Like some other space westerns currently on streaming mm. services. <laughs> so, what do you think of the finale of this film? It, uh, like I said, I didn't, I wasn't as familiar with as much of the history of it, but I even I kind of knew, like, oh, this is a different, like, this isn't what happened in real life. Cause I was at least familiar enough with the idea of, yeah, I'm pretty sure that this, these Manson family kids, like, murdered these people so i'm just like huh okay that's it is this movie ending <laughs> like <laughs> i guess that's it huh i i do kind of like the the like okay fill in your own blank for what happens from now on like where does this fairy tale go like is you know rick dalton gonna finally meet roman polanski and get his big break or yeah that's kind of what the film is leading you to it's like maybe he revitalized his career by being involved like you know saving these people's lives like Mm -hmm. and the it is left to you to like fill like you said to come to your own conclusions but like again it's quentin tarantino giving a happy ending to people that were brutally murdered in their in their home by really heinous people. Yeah. And uh yeah, I do I do like that sort of ending that was maybe popularized by Inception where it's just like what happens next you decide. Um you know there there's def- there's something to be said that his portrayal of them as kind of like bumbling and the, the Manson family that is as Mm -hmm. like unsure, you know, kids and not knowing what they're doing and uh, take what he's doing is taking the power and the venom from what they actually did and making them look like buffoons that had they actually met someone that could do real violence against people, it would have turned out differently. Yeah. And it is very much that Quentin Tarantino ultraviolence, like, yeah, <laughs> that flamethrower scene is uh, something else. <laughs> Which is funny because that is a classic Chekhov's gun. They mm-hmm. they, they set it up where he where Rick Dalton knew how to use it, um, with a very funny aside where he's like, yeah, I, I, I trained for you know weeks on end three hours a day to to use that sucker because i was just you know terrified of it and it shows him 
in the, in the <laughs> getting a test thing is like and he, he says some line it's like ah god damn that is hot there's something we can do about the heat it's like <laughs> rick it's a flamethrower <laughs> all right <laughs> yeah um that speaking of like that kind of point in the movie right when they cut back from uh what's the fictional title called something in the 14 fists of 14 fists of mccluskey that's right R- right right as you're getting into that movie right as he's doing the fried sauerkraut line like it just cuts back to a uh, al pacino just at the perfect time it's it's a very it's a very tarantino cut yeah um like another we you know, talked about it in the opening of this you know shorter episode but i would love to see all of rick dalton's films yeah you know, like i would i would watch the 14 fists of mccluskey <laughs> yeah kind of as a uh a different take on where eagles dare which we covered yeah where uh, eagles dare meets the dirty dozen meets you know any number of world war ii drama films meets tarantino basically yeah yeah it was basically how he would have done a world war ii grindhouse film yeah so he did that (laughs) true and it was great um so yeah in this new streaming era hopefully you know like when we're getting these these alternate cuts of like uh the hateful eight you know where it's a mini series now and it's extended and Hopefully we can get that, those episodes. Of those uh, Bounty Law. I know for, yeah. a f- I, I am fairly certain that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is getting the same extended version treatment on Netflix. So, yeah. um, look forward to that because I, honestly, I could do with more of this movie. Whereas with The Hateful Eight, in comparison, I'm like, no, that film was good. I don't need to see more. <laughs> yeah. I liked the characters and what they did with it. And there was some great gallows humor and it wrapped itself up nicely. I don't want more. Whereas this, I could just watch Cliff and Rick, you know, (laughs) talking shit about the episode he just filmed that's airing right now, which really had a very mystery science theater 3000 vibe, actually. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is a good, uh, when they're both sitting together watching that episode FBI, it's it's very real and very very fun, but uh, yeah. did you want to talk about the digital pre-release of this movie at all? Yeah, fuck that. I want to spend money on a thing that I can own and not a digital copy that I can only watch when it you know the moon is in uh, you know full ascension <laughs> on its you know crescent phase and my internet is working. Yeah. The fact that that that. Digital streaming services have it for rent right now, and you can buy it on Amazon Prime, but I can't go to the store right now and buy my copy to own for the rest of my life as long as that copy still works is mm. horse shit. <laughs> yeah, you got a good uh, 75 years before that Blu-ray degrades probably, so. Yeah, it's, it's a dumb thing that makes people who maybe don't have as much patience or maybe just they just want to see the movie that they want to see (laughs) yeah they want to see it the way they want to see it when they want to see it and while i think streaming is great some movies i want to give my money so that they're like oh 
these people spent money buying physical copies of this. Maybe we should make more of this film. Yeah. And give give that money in a format where you can rip a backup copy for your own personal use under the DMCA. And maybe maybe that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's the thing that these physical copies do come with. They, you know, they usually bundle them as a Blu-ray DVD combo pack with digital copies that you can legally burn to your computer like, you know, five times or whatever it is. Yeah. It's like, why would I pay roughly the same for just a one digital copy that, oh, I could use it on all my digital things as long as I have an internet connection. What if I'm on a plane? What if my internet goes out? What if the mm-hmm. world ends? <laughs> the, it's just, it's it's a sad trend, in my opinion, to just milk as much money from as many people as possible rather than just give them the thing they want. Yeah. Just give me the thing I want, not the thing I kind of want. Not the thing that I don't really want. Just give me the thing I want. <laughs> Imagine going to a fast food restaurant and ordering a burger and they're like, well, here's a version of that burger. It's not the same. It's, it's slightly less expensive, but it's not the burger you ordered. We're going to have that burger in another week. Right, right. <laughs> you know, that burger will be here. We're, we're not going to not make that burger, but you got to wait a week. It's a, it's a soft opening. It's like an out of town preview. <laughs> what are you quoting there? Uh, that's Ocean's 13. You're right. <laughs> um, you know, another film that I feel this is a good companion piece to, not necessarily 100% tonally, but like era and um, at least um, feeling of the film is uh, Bad Times at the El Royale. Mm-hmm. This film and that film... I think are great companion pieces for the era that they're set in. Yeah. And they're also both just good films. Uh, Bad times at the El Royale was forgotten at the the theaters and you all should be ashamed of yourselves, myself included. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Not compatible in ratings. Uh, Fun fact, this movie stacks up against movies such as Toy Story 4, uh, The Force Awakens, uh, Call Me By Your Name, and Dunkirk. That's kind of that's kind of the air it sits in on IMDb at a seven point nine. I I think it's a little higher. It's definitely not Quentin Tarantino's best, mm-hmm. but it's probably one of my favorites. Yeah, uh, I wish I could see what all of Quentin Tarantino's movies were rated. I want. I I doubt this is his highest rated. I think they all sit roughly at the same era area, except for Death Proof. That's his lowest rated film. I know that for a fact. Yeah. I don't know what it's rated, but I know that it's not well loved. I'm going to take a stab and say Pulp Fiction is probably his highest at an 8.9. Maybe it's that or um, Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. Reservoir Dogs is an 8.3. Inglorious Bastards is also an 8.3. So, okay. hey, we could do Reservoir Dogs versus Inglorious Bastards. <laughs> Something to think about. Something to think about. Uh, another time on the full uh, podcast. Right. Uh, got anything else to add for this movie? I think uh, I'm good. All right. A hearty recommendation, I think, from both of us. Go watch it. It's worth your yeah. time. 
go go buy it go buy two copies buy a digital copy buy a real copy uh <laughs> you know pirate stream it uh you know go to movie theaters and 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 just yell about once upon a time in hollywood to anyone that'll listen yeah it comes out on physical december 10th which is probably before this episode will come out so by the time you listen to this it's probably available but it's available right now streaming from amazon prime video as well as youtube all hail our digital overlords. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us digitally, you can email us at matchcutpod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at matchcut. That's a wrap for this episode. We'll see you uh, next time for our uh, season finale. Peace. Bye. Bye.